This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and we're just going to read a few selected verses from that great chapter of the New Testament. And the Apostle writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This is the word of the Lord. Now, 17 years ago, my friend Jeff and I went on my first and only short-term missions trip to West Africa. And our assignment was to teach refugees from the civil wars in Sierra Leone and Liberia. We were to teach them how to share the gospel with Muslims. Now, in reflection, I am confounded that we were chosen for this job because I'd never shared the gospel with a Muslim before in my life and probably had never spoken with one. But despite our uh, blundering incompetence, the material was really solid. And the idea behind it was that an African villager would collect Muslims from his village and they would gather in the dusty central square under the old tree And you would start taking them through the Bible, starting in the book of Genesis. And you would spend months and months telling these stories, building on common ground with Muslims, before you finally and slowly and gradually introduce them to Jesus Christ. And I can't remember whether it was Matthew or Mark or Luke that they used once they got to the New Testament, but I'm sure of this, it was definitely not the Gospel of John. And anyone who witnesses to Muslim, Muslims know, do not start with the Gospel of John with a Muslim, because they're going to be in an uproar before you even get past verse 1. See, the fourth Gospel just hits us right over the head with Christianity's most staggering claim. See, John doesn't offer this slowly dawning realization of the Messiah's identity, as do Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is direct. He dispenses with the Christmas story entirely. No donkey, no shepherds, no angels, no wise men. In fact, there's no baby Jesus in the Gospel of John. John just opens by proclaiming a doctrine that stands in sharp contrast not only to Islam but to every world religion and every philosophical system that the Word became flesh, that God is now a human being. And Christ didn't appear in the mists of time like the avatars of Vishnu and other Hindu deities to momentarily disguise himself in human form. He entered into history 
and permanently became man, as real and as human as the person sitting next to you. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is what we call the incarnation. The incarnation is this act of God the Son whereby He becomes man, such, such that He is and He remains both fully God and fully man, one person with two natures. More simply, Jesus Christ is both true God and true man in one person. And that sentence is the central doctrine of the Christian faith because Christianity is Christ, isn't it? And nothing is more crucial for our own destiny than how we answer this question that Jesus asks us. Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? And what we confess with the global church of all ages, Pentecostal and Presbyterian, Roman Catholic and Russian Orthodox, is that Jesus is true God and true man. And Christians disagree on many matters of secondary importance. And we talked about some of those last week. But on the identity of Jesus, we stand together and we confess as one people of God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the boundary marker around the Christian faith. And as 1 John states, by this you know the Spirit of God. How do we know that the Holy Spirit is actually active? Here it is. Here's the test. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That is the litmus test. Who is Jesus? And we confess that Jesus is the Christ sent from God. The Word became flesh. Now, we confess, even though we don't comprehend. See, how could one person be at the same time fully God and fully man? Not half and half, not some strange blender mixture. He's fully God and fully man. How is that possible? And we could get into all sorts of philosophical explanations, but the fact is that we're standing in front of a great mystery, and we are called to worship where we cannot fully understand, where we cannot partially understand. See, if God is comprehensible to your little mind, then your God is too small. We do not expect God to be understandable to us creatures. He is far too great. And so this afternoon, we're not trying to ask, how does the incarnation work? As if we could open up the hood and take the pieces apart and try to figure out how it all fits together. We're asking, what does incarnation mean for us? Why did the Son become man? And perhaps the simplest plan this afternoon is just to break it down into three parts. Jesus shows us true God. Jesus shows us true man. And then Jesus shows us true God and true man in one person. So, to begin with, Jesus is true God. As we read in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus came to show us God. See, all goodness and beauty and truth 
find their source in God. And the highest joy and the highest purpose of human beings is to feast our eyes on that glory, to walk with God in the garden as our friend, and to have him share who he really is with us. That's what friendship is all about, isn't it? Self-disclosure. But then, sin casts its cold shadow upon us. And we're forced from the garden into the bleak wilderness. And now we're far from God, and we're darkened in our understanding, and we're, we're just really confused about what God is really like. And we imagine all sorts of strange things about him, some self-serving and some terrifying. So here's the dilemma we have. Our destiny is to know God, and our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in him. But who can show us the divine? Even the highest angels have to hide their faces from Yahweh's burning glory. But there is someone who can look fearlessly into the face of God and live, who can look into God's face as an equal, and that person is God the Son. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Son is distinct from the Father. The Son and the Father are not the same person, yet the Son in all respects, is fully equal with the Father. As Hebrews 1 declares, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And that's why when the disciple Philip asks Jesus, Lord, show us the Father in John 14. Do you remember what Jesus says to him? He looks him in the eye And he says, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus reveals the Father. And as Irenaeus of Lyon said in the second century, the Father is the invisible of the Son, and the Son is the visible of the Father. The Father is the invisible of the Son, and the Son is the visible of the Father. And Jesus doesn't just bear kind of a faint resemblance to his Father. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Not a blurry, scaled-down, and distorted reproduction, but the exact imprint, clear and distinct. Jesus is the word of self-disclosure that God speaks to his lost creation. Now, if in becoming man, Jesus became less than God, then he could no longer show us who God is. And that's why we should not think of the incarnation as Jesus putting aside his divine nature or his divine power. Had Jesus done so, the universe would have instantly vanished because he upholds the cosmos by the word of his power. See, the miracle of the incarnation is that Jesus became fully human while remaining fully God. It's not a subtraction, it's an addition. So while the infant Jesus lay in the cradle, he was holding the stars in their courses. And while he nursed at his mother's breast, he was sustaining the whole created order, right down to the subatomic level. And when the eternal son is led to his death, 
It's to a tree that he had caused to grow. And he's nailed there by men whose every breath is a gift from his hand. So Jesus, even in the form of a servant, never ceased to be true God. And if we want to know what does God look like, who is he, Jesus invites us, look at me. And it's no accident that the Spirit has given us four different accounts of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and four different pens have sketched this portrait of the God-man. So as we read about Jesus going about healing the sick and casting out demons and raising the dead and preaching the good news of the kingdom and dying for his people, we're not reading merely about a wise teacher or a great prophet or even a man with an unusual anointing of the Holy Spirit to look into the face of Jesus is to behold the face of God. But Jesus doesn't just show us true God. He also shows us true man. Here's our second point. Christ is as fully man as he is fully God. He shares our nature just as completely as he shares God's nature. If Jesus was only partially human, even mostly human, we could not trust him as one of our own, and he would not have saved our full humanity. So, we confess joyfully that Christ had a human body. He had a throat that got dry, and a nose that sniffled, and a stomach that growled, and feet that ached. Jesus needed food and water and sleep and the bathroom just as much as Peter and James and John did. He got scratches and sunburns. He woke up with those little crusty things in the corner of his eyes. He got dirty and sweaty. Jesus had all the experiences, all the needs, and all the temptations that go with having a human body. But, We also confess that Jesus had a human mind. It wasn't as though he was just human on the outside, but God was in the inside, kind of wearing him as a costume or or a puppet. Jesus had a human mind that remembered and reflected and processed things the way any human mind works. And it was a mind, we're told, that needed to learn things. For we're told that as a boy, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Jesus had all the experiences, needs, and temptations that go with having a human mind. Not only that, Jesus, thank God, had human emotions. He wasn't a cold and remote stoic like the Terminator or something. Jesus was loved by everyone from small children to hardened prostitutes. People loved to be with him. They loved to invite him to their parties. In fact, the Pharisees accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's not cold, harsh, emotionless people who are like that. Joyful people, happy people. But Jesus knew tears as well as laughter. His heart was moved with compassion for those in distress all around him. The father with the demon-possessed boy, the devastated widow burying her only son. When he saw his friend Mary weeping at her brother's tomb. What does Jesus do? He sobs along with her. But Jesus didn't just feel joy 
and grief. He also knew what it was to feel indignant anger. When the Pharisees used the man with the withered hand to trap Jesus into healing on the Sabbath, we're told that he looked around at them with anger, being grieved at their hardness of hearts. And when he saw the money changers turning the temple of God into a flea market, he flips the tables over and drives them out with a whip. Jesus had all the experiences, needs, and temptation that go with having real human emotions. So, Christ was, and he is, fully human, and therefore, he's able to save us human beings who have human bodies and human minds and human emotions. 1,500 years ago, Gregory of Nazianzus, who was from what is now modern-day Turkey, he laid out this important theological dictum. What Christ has not assumed, he has not saved. What Christ has not taken on, he's not saved. So, if Jesus did not take on a human mind, there is no hope for our minds. If Jesus did not take on human emotions, there is no hope for human emotions. And if Jesus did not take on a human body, there is no hope for our bodies. If Jesus did not assume our humanity fully, completely, and without reserve, salvation would be partial at best. But Jesus did not come to diminish us. He came to enrich us. And therefore, no Christianity that pressures you to give up your mind or your emotions or your body is a Christianity that comes from Jesus. He comes to affirm, to celebrate, to heal, and to redeem our full humanity. And that is really good news. Now, the book of Hebrews emphasizes that Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect with one exception. He was without sin. He was certainly tempted. In fact, far more than you will ever be tempted. The evil one came at Jesus with everything he had. But our Lord was without sin. And that does not make him less human, but more human. Because our sin and our ugliness dehumanizes and diminishes us. It promises to make us higher than gods, and it ends by making us lower than the beasts. And so, if you're wondering, what does it mean to be truly human? Look at Jesus. He was the first human being to fully live the way God intended us to live. You see, Jesus came to reveal true God, but he also came to reveal true man. And if Philip had asked instead, teacher, show us true humanity, and that will be enough for us, Jesus could have answered, Philip, if you've seen me, you have seen true man. God has chosen Jesus to be the prototype of the new humanity. And as we saw last week, our destiny is to be refashioned in His image, to be both truly ourselves and truly His reflection. And so, if you feel depressed and overwhelmed by who you are, look at your own future in the face of Jesus. So, here's Jesus showing us true God and true man. But the really good news is that in Jesus, God and man come together in one person. That's my final point. Think about, think about this for a second. If this circle here represents the triune God, and this circle here represents the whole human race, then Christ is the place where those two circles 
overlap. Of all the created and uncreated beings, Jesus is the only one who belongs to both circles. He's just as fully ours as he is God's and just as fully God's as he is ours. That's why Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus can be the bridge between God and man because he's a full-fledged member of both camps. It's hard, isn't it, to trust a mediator who doesn't really care about your interests. Imagine going to the HR representative at work to complain about your boss, and things just kind of get swept under the carpet, and then you remember, wait a second, this woman doesn't work for me, she works for the company. She's not really representing my interests. Jesus is not like that. If we think, well, Jesus is divine, he's not really human, we will suspect that he doesn't really care about the things that matter to us human beings. On the other hand, if we think, well, yes, Jesus is human, but he's not fully divine, then we'll doubt that he's truly authorized to act on God's behalf. But since Jesus is both fully God and fully man, he brings together both parties in this broken relationship. He is fully identified and fully invested in the Father's interests, and he is fully identified with and fully invested in our interests. But we can go even further because Jesus doesn't just help each party find the middle ground. He himself is the middle ground. So if we're wondering, how can God and mankind dwell together in peace? We can look at the person of Jesus himself and see God and man in oneness. Do you see that? In Jesus himself, God and man are living together at peace. In their book on the Incarnation, John Clark and Marcus Peter Johnson say this, the personal union of the divine and human natures in Christ is a profound reconciliation of God and man within the very person of our Lord. Slow down and think about what this means. Christ himself is our salvation. We're not called to put our faith in the cross or in the blood or the atonement or the resurrection or any gospel event. I cannot trust an event. I cannot trust a concept. I cannot trust an idea. But I can and I do trust this person, Jesus Christ himself. See, it's really easy to detach salvation from Christ, to treat Jesus as little more than the apparatus that's necessary to get the job done. And we start thinking of salvation as this collection of depersonalized benefits that can be pulled apart from Christ. And you hear this, for example, when people describe the gospel as God transferring Jesus' righteousness from his account to ours. Salvation is not a bank balance. It's not a substance or kind of gas. Salvation is Christ himself. Jesus did not come to open the way. He is the way. Jesus did not come to tell us the truth. He is the truth. Jesus did not come to give us life. He is our life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection and the life. To know Jesus is to know eternal life. He came so that sinful men and women and children could enjoy his own relationship with the Father. 
Christ is one with His Father in His divine nature. He's one with us in His human nature. And through Him, we are one with God in a union that cannot be broken. Just as Jesus Himself cannot be split into two, God and man are now permanently fused together in the person of Jesus. So God and humanity can no longer be separated. We are one now and forever in a union that cannot be broken. So, in the soft glow of Christmas sentimentality, it's easy to forget the startling news that Christmas announces. God has become man. The Word has become flesh. And if it was given to you to enter the highest heaven and walk through the crowd of angels flaming like fire and noble beasts with heads like lions and eagles, you would find them all bowing before a throne. And on that throne, what would you see but a man? A human being, awesome in glory and power, yet one of our own, one of our guys, a fellow son of Adam, our very flesh and blood. If our God is a human being, one of our very own, then maybe salvation can be good news. What if God wasn't demanding that we renounce everything good about being human, to live some higher supernatural spiritual life? What if picking ripe tomatoes from the garden, solving a naughty business problem, tucking into a bowl of stew after a day out in the snow, smelling your lover's hair as the sun goes down, singing songs with old friends late into the night, what if all those experiences were blessed by God because He had blessed humanity by Himself becoming human? Christmas reminds us that God loves us. He really loves us. He loves us so much, in fact, that he became one of us. God could not possibly love the human race more than that. The Word has become flesh, and this light is the life of men. Let's pray and thank God for this as the worship team comes up. Father, we thank you afresh for the gift of your Son. Nothing dignifies us more as human beings than the fact that We share our nature with your own Son, and we rejoice that Jesus came to take our nature fully and unreservedly to save our whole humanity. So, Lord, help us to see what Christ has revealed, who the true God is, who the true humanity is. Give us grace to offer up our humanity back to you in joyful trust. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.